This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Today, since when did diet and renovations become partisan issues? Conservatives are attacking liberals over the failure to repair 24 Sussex, the prime minister's residence, and vice versa in the food guide fight. Liberals are slamming conservatives for promising to review Canada's latest template for healthy eating. We'll try to drill down past the politics. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Divorce is destroying the finances of Zoomers. The rate of divorce after 50 has doubled in the U.S. since 1990, and it's not just bank accounts taking a hit. The so-called gray divorce is particularly hard on emotional health, too. The National Center for Family and Marriage Research reports that incomes collapse, especially for women, with their standard of living dropping by an average 45%. Seniors in Singapore are gardening more to counter loneliness. The small island nation has the world's second fastest aging population after South Korea, and the number of suicides by those over 60 hit record levels. Singapore rolled out a garden plan where seniors share plots of land to foster closer social bonds and a love of gardening. The World Health Organization predicts one in five or two billion people will be 60 or older by 2050, and that is double the 2015 number. Researchers think they know why weed makes some people happy and others paranoid. A new study on rats found reaction to weed depends on which part of the brain is most sensitive to THC. If it's the front lobe, marijuana will produce feelings of joy and reduced anxiety. If it's in the back region, it produces negative reactions like paranoia and fear. This breakthrough study at Western University in London, Ontario, is a departure from other work, including a 2014 study from Oxford that suggested traits such as low self-esteem play a role. A tiny wireless sensor is making a big difference for heart failure patients. Dr. Brian Clark from Calgary's Foothills Medical Center says the device is just 15 millimeters long and implanted in the pulmonary artery to measure lung pressure, which alerts doctors to any potential problems with ongoing treatment. Clark has already implanted six of the sensors in a pilot project that runs until next year. The truth, we fell in love with each other. That's Phyllis Cook, who, at 103, just married 100 year old John Cook in a nursing home in Ohio. The pair had been dating for about a year, and as devout Christians decided, it would be best to tie the knot. The couple spend their days with each other in an assisted living facility, but Phyllis says they both kept their individual rooms 
if they need space from each other. This is the third marriage for both seniors. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The National Capital Commission lists its condition as critical. The problem with 24 Sussex Drive is that prime minister after prime minister has refused to spend money on renovations, presumably to avoid being accused of wasting taxpayers' dollars on themselves. Now, the conservatives are blasting Justin Trudeau because the cost, estimated at $10 million in 2008, has skyrocketed to $34.5 million for a reno and $38.5 million to tear it down and rebuild. But this fight started long before the last election. I reached David Fleming from Heritage, Ottawa. It's a mid-19th century home. It was built in the 1860s. It was built by a businessman. And it, it was a sort of very, originally the, uh, the architecture was very sort of gothic, and then uh, some additions were put on that were more chateau type, so similar to the Parliament buildings and the Chateau Laurier Hotel. The federal government took it over in the 1940s, and uh, it was first a residence of uh, the Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent, was the first Prime Minister to live there, and it's been used ever since until uh, Prime Minister Trudeau decided uh, he didn't want his family to to live there, and uh, they moved across the street to Rideau Cottage, which is on the grounds of uh, of Rio Hall. And long before then, it's been it's been falling into disrepair. They haven't been doing the, the proper maintenance on the building over the years. And uh, I think it's mainly for, for political reasons. What is actually wrong with 24 Sussex? Well, it, it's, a, it's an older building. Uh, it, it's claimed that it has asbestos in it, which is not uncommon. You know, having asbestos in buildings, if it's properly sealed, uh, sealed is not really a danger or a hazard. But uh, I guess if, uh, you know, the plaster is starting to crack, if uh, there's mold getting in because the windows are leaking, then uh, then obviously it, it's going to need some attention. But But that's not untypical of older buildings to to have to do that kind of thing. Is it a fire trap? Oh, I don't think, I I wouldn't think so. I mean, if it was a fire trap, I don't think you'd have people working in there now like you do. The the kitchen is is being used in the building, and and I think some of the people who work in the kitchen are also staying there. They make the Prime Minister's meals, and they truck them across the street. (laughs) The, The Prime Minister and his family swim in the pool. That was added by the prime minister, the current prime minister's father years ago. Do you know when and how it became a political issue? Because it hasn't been fixed up, I believe, dating back to Jean Chrétien. Uh, no, that's true. You know, it became a, a political issue, I think, uh, really, when Prime Minister Harper was in office. And uh, because at that time... Public Works had come up with a proposal to do some work on it. I think it was just after Paul Martin uh, was uh, was Prime Minister, and then uh, he he apparently, according to the news, he vetoed it because it uh, because of the optics of you know having the taxpayers have to pay for you know an upgrade of his house, <laughs> and um, and I think the current Prime Minister probably. It seems to have taken the same view. I worked on Parliament Hill in the late 80s, and even back then there was always a debate about whether 24 Sussex had architectural and other merit in and of itself. 
Yeah, that that's true, and uh, you know, it's not. Uh, it, it's been designated by the Federal Heritage Building Review Office (FIBRO) and of of being of um, of significance. It's on the Canadian Register, but that doesn't uh, that doesn't really give it any protection at all. So apparently, uh, Paul Martin, the former Prime Minister, are, has argued that Twenty Four Sussex is a historical landmark. Kim Campbell, who was Prime Minister for four months, says it isn't. It should be knocked down, as has uh, Joe Clark's wife, Maureen McTeer. That's right. Yes, yes. And, and, you know, and and, and that's that's a valid approach, I guess. You know, you you say, let's make this the the centerpiece and the showpiece of modern architecture. And the best way of doing that is to tear it down. Um, What we're saying is it's an existing building. It has some historical historic and heritage value, and it probably makes more sense to keep the building there and to restore it rather than tear it down and truck all of that stone away <laughs> and uh, build something new. All we want is, is somebody to look at it, to, you know, to take it out of the political realm and to say, what can we do with this building? What are the options? What are the requirements of the prime minister and the prime minister's office? Having a home for a prime minister, having a home for our governor general is a cost of doing business as a country. Most countries of the world, you know, provide a residence for uh, for their heads of state and their elected officials, uh, elected leaders. And, um, you know, Canada should be no exception. David Fleming, thank you so much for being with us. Okay, you're welcome. David Fleming has been a heritage advocate for half a century. The Liberals are blasting Conservative leader Andrew Scheer for saying this about the new Canada Food Guide. We're going to review that Canada uh, Food Guide. Uh, the, the, the process was flawed. He was speaking to an audience of dairy farmers. That group was instrumental in clinching the Conservative Party leadership for him. They're aggrieved because dairy is no longer listed as an essential food group. What do the experts think? I reached obesity specialist Dr. Yoni Friedhoff to find out. He's an associate professor of family medicine at the University of Ottawa and the founder of the Bariatric Medical Institute. It's hard to imagine more ridiculous statements from a nutrition file perspective. When it comes to the food guide, uh, this year, this time around, actually for the first time in the history of Canada, uh, Health Canada amazingly decided to only care about science, about evidence, and about public health. Prior years, Health Canada had, as Andrew Scheer ap- apparently wants to do, uh, involved the food industry very directly in the creation of the food guide. And that, unfortunately, uh, leads to strange recommendations because The food industry's job is to protect and promote sales of its own products. The food industry's job is not to protect and promote the health of Canadians. And so we have had over the years a whole host of food guides that were really quite atrocious when it came to the best evidence of the impact of diet on chronic disease. We had food guides that suggested we should consume juice as an equivalent to fruit. That, yes, chocolate milk was a healthy choice, which it is not. Uh, chocolate milk is sweetened with a great deal of sugar. Uh, the World Health Organization, Canada's Heart and Stroke Foundation, the American Pediatric Society, Canadian Pediatric Society, everybody agrees this is something we need to limit. And here is Mr. Shear saying that we need to revisit things and we need to 
uh, take into account the research that the dairy farmers specifically want to include in the food guide. And I do guarantee that the research they want to include will suggest we should all be drinking more of milk. Milk is not a magic fairy food. It's also not scary. Uh, but the bottom line is what was clear to me was that this was not, could not have been about uh, health or beliefs. I, I refuse to believe that Mr. Scheer uh, is as, you know, uh, as stupid as those comments were. And so that brings me back to politics, and I really think that when it comes to public health, politics should not be uh, part of the picture, and yet, sadly, they seem to be, at least with Mr. Scheer. What are the key takeaways in the food guide? The main value of the food guide isn't to the individual Canadian. People aren't going to be shopping with it uh, in hand. That's not the way the food guide influences uh, nutrition in Canada. It influences nutrition in Canada as a policy document. It's a document that becomes sort of the nutritional backdrop of the country more so than a document that people shop with. But, you know, the food guide's primary recommendations are pretty easy to summarize. The food guide encourages Canadians to regularly consume vegetables, fruits, whole grains, and protein uh, when possible. They recommend that we consume healthy fats instead of unhealthy fats, but they, unlike prior guides, are not fat-phobic. They are saying total fat matters a lot less in your diet than the types of fats. The guide tells us to make water our beverage of choice while explicitly cautioning against fruit juice and sugar-sweetened milks. It recommends we limit our consumption of processed foods uh, and our consumption of alcohol. It recommends we plan our meals and cook our meals more often uh, and eat with others, which sounds like motherhood, but honestly, I think encouraging cooking is a good idea, and as this document informs policy, perhaps this can influence school policies to include cooking once again in schools where children can graduate knowing how to cook a number of meals that are nutritious and economical from whole ingredients. The guide recommends we use food labels and the guide wants us to be aware that food marketing is there to influence our choices and not to necessarily trust what we read in advertisements or on the fronts of packages. Ultimately, we all need to craft the healthiest diet that we can enjoy. What's nice about this food guide is it provides a great deal of latitude as to what that diet might look like. You know, this food guide can be adopted to people who are following a low-carb diet or a keto diet. This food guide can be adopted for people who are following a low-sodium or a low-fat diet or people who just want a middle-of-the-road diet that doesn't really worry too much about macronutrients. It's telling us to, again, have plenty of fruits and vegetables, make sure we include protein, drink water, and if we're having grains, make them whole. Uh, that's the crux of the recommendations here. Yeah, I wish that nutrition was as granular as, as the world seems to think it is. It's not this food is good for you and that food is bad for you for the most part. What we understand to be true about nutrition has to do with patterns of meals and snacks, and this food guide suggests what we understand to be a healthy pattern. Dr. Yoni Friedhoff, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. That was Dr. Yoni Friedhoff, one of Canada's foremost experts on obesity. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. 
Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, Faz Kazi, and Justin Eacock. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.